Welcome to Dr. Waffle and Friends, a podcast where we share personal writing and then chat about it together. And now, here's Tanya with the reading. For Agnes, a play in one act. I don't tell everyone about my past, but it's time for me to speak my truth. I watched all my children. A lot. I started when I was 17. That's the summer Tad's sister Jenny married Greg, which threw Tony into a jealous rage, so he planted a bomb in Greg's jet ski, but Jenny ended up on the jet ski, which blew up, and she died. I still think of jet skis as instruments of death. It was also, perhaps, the summer I had nothing better to do. Too old for summer camp, too innocent to generate my own romantic drama, too wilted by the humidity of central Virginia to manage much more than the early shift at Mr. Donut, followed by sitting in front of the TV, getting to know the residents of Pine Valley which is conveniently located 15 minutes from Philadelphia and only an hour from New York City, which is, of course, geographically impossible. But that's not the most prominent logical inconsistency of all my children. I came by my habit honestly, perhaps even genetically. I am not the first in my family to watch AMC, all my children. My mother's mother, my papa, emigrated from China and spoke very little English. Have some more cake. Popo's favorite shows were All My Children and Professional Wrestling, which are the closest forms of entertainment to Chinese opera that we have in the U.S. Sadly, Popo lived 3,000 miles away in San Francisco and died when I was 14, so we never got to bond over AMC. My sister had left for college, and my parents were far more likely to fill the house with Gilbert and Sullivan light opera than to deign to watch a soap opera, so I indulged alone in the basement. Through my final year of high school, I caught all my children only sporadically, given the demands of drama club drama and my rise to power as senior class vice president. I left home to attend college in Philadelphia, you know. 15 minutes from Pine Valley. There I became friends with sassy New Yorker Yvonne, in part due to our shared affection for all my children. I would come back to my dorm room after classes to her announcement on my dry erase board. AMC time! And I would dash off to join her in Vinnie and David's room. Aspiring diva Vinnie worshipped Erica Kane. Even in the mid-80s, Vinny and David had the latest technology, and we would watch the day's episode that they had videotaped. The next year, they all graduated and moved to New York, and my parents bought me my own VCR. So, so you, you can, can watch, watch your, your soap, soap opera, opera every day. day. So I can go to class every day. My new AMC buddy, Stephanie, would come over to my apartment and we would watch together. During the mid to late 80s era, they would show the Lee Press-On-Nails commercial at least three times per episode. Stephanie and I would perform it sometimes as a party trick. Introducing Lee Press-On-Nails. They press on in seconds. No glue, no mess. Simply press on Lee Superstick tabs, then press on Lee Press-On-Nails. Easy on, easy off. Use them again and again. They just won't break or split. Polish, and, and they're, they're nearly, nearly impossible to chip. So press on. Lee press on nails in natural and glamour length and a variety of sizes for a quick, easy fit. After college, I got a job educating people about HIV in the Philadelphia suburbs, where there is not actually a Pine Valley. And Stephanie worked at the cool new bookstore called Borders. It had a coffee shop in it. Stephanie and I lived together, so it was easy to coordinate AMC viewing. After work, we would make something out of the Moosewood cookbook for dinner and sit on the futon sofa watching the drama unfold. Stephanie drew an all-my-children family tree with the names of the characters connected by color-coded lines that indicated various types of relationships. Red for marriages, blue for offspring, green for adopted children, and a few special icons— Gravestones for those who were dead, at the time, 
martini glasses for alcoholics, hearts around Angie and Frankie and other couples we particularly loved. Stephanie was the creative one. Stephanie and I lived with Jeremy. Not Jeremy Hunter, the French-Canadian mercenary-turned-monk-turned-artist who fell in love with Erica Kane who tried to rescue him from prison in a helicopter. No, not that Jeremy. His namesake, my cat. Not the heartthrob Jeremy who said, Erica, if you leave me, it will hurt me for the rest of my life. Rather, the furry Jeremy who said, Meow. I didn't miss an episode all through grad school. The only non-AMC TV I recall watching during this period were the early seasons of Friends and that bizarre police chase of O.J. Simpson in the White Bronco. My partner Rob couldn't understand my commitment to all my children. How can you stand to watch such obvious dysfunction? I spend my days learning to be empathic. I need to have someone I can be catty about. Anyway, All My Children has considerable social significance. Erica Kane was the first soap opera character to have an abortion, and it was the first soap opera to have two women kissing and to have a character with HIV. And they've dealt with prostitution and homelessness. Watching it is practically social science research. And then, there was that week when Maria Santos, the beautiful and beloved Latina doctor, died. And... Then, that same week, beautiful and beloved Princess Diana died. And that weekend, I was watching Maria's funeral, and the videotape ran out, so the VCR stopped, and suddenly, on the TV is Princess Diana's funeral. And I was sobbing for Maria and sobbing for Princess Di in collective grief with the whole world. I got my Ph.D., my first faculty position, and one of those TVs with a built-in VCR so I could watch the day's episode while I was making dinner. As I moved around the country, as relationships began and ended, all my children was always there. Once, I attended a conference in L.A., and I went to lunch with another feminist psychology professor, at the same restaurant where the All My Children cast was celebrating Susan Lucci's star on Hollywood Boulevard. I didn't know this when I chose the restaurant, but then in walks Adam Chandler. Or was it his twin brother, Stuart? Followed by Palmer Cortland, Dixie Cooney Martin, and all the other residents of Pine Valley. I was completely freaking out. My colleague thought it was hilarious that I couldn't take my eyes off the event room, and I was practically hyperventilating. I might need to write this up for a professional newsletter. And she had the perfect headline when I followed Tad Martin to the bathroom. Feminists catch up with Tad the Cad. I stopped at the door, recognizing in time that stalker behavior is not very attractive. I'm not Liza Colby, after all. When my colleague went back to the conference, I coerced a student to come sit with me so I wouldn't need to leave my vantage point. This was not my proudest professional moment. A few years after I moved to Santa Barbara, I started taking acting classes, and around the same time, they moved the filming of All My Children from New York to L.A., which I took as a sign that I was going to get a part on AMC and become a soap opera star. Which, by the way, did not happen. Even though an Asian-American psychologist character would have been a brilliant addition to the show. And then, they announced that ABC was canceling the show, but that it was going to be picked up as an internet show. Sister feminist politico AMC fan Hillary came over. Popcorn? Have some more cake. And we watched the final week's episodes which ended in a cliffhanger. And then all the fans held on to the edge of that cliff for two years, gradually letting go of hope that our beloved show would return. Then there came a magical moment, just as Veronica Mars kickstarted to the big screen, just as I was reuniting with my ex, 
like a phoenix rising from the ashes, all my children was back. So, laptop on the kitchen counter, I watched. For a while. And then I stopped. And then we all stopped. And then it quietly went away. But that was somehow okay. At this point in my life, I had experienced enough drama. I had a marriage and divorce under my belt. I had had my own first kiss with a woman. I had celebrated successes, made good friends, and some bad decisions. People came and went, and I had played tearful bedside farewell scenes with friends who died far too young. There had been tropical island vacations and lovely weddings, and babies born, and tornadoes, and earthquakes, and secrets revealed. Of course, I hadn't experienced absolutely everything that happened on AMC. No one I know has had amnesia or come back from the dead. Not surprisingly, I've never ridden a jet ski. And my sister didn't put me at the bottom of a well and do a radical makeover so she could pass as me and take over my life. Or did she? And then, in 2016, the year that took Prince and Princess Leia, David Bowie and Leonard Cohen, and the very soul of the United States of America. Agnes Nixon, the creator of AMC, died. And so, I leave you with this tribute and the poem she wrote for the show. The great and the least, the rich and the poor, the weak and the strong, in sickness and in health, in joy and sorrow, in tragedy and triumph, you are all my children. Thank you, Tanya, so much for that hilarious play. I loved it. Man, really, really funny. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for participating. That was great. I love that. (laughs) Absolutely. And thank you so much to Scott for uh, participating as well. Absolutely. I was the guest voice for all the women's parts, but the male voice you heard was Scott, Mr. Waffle. Um, working on his best French accent for chair. I guess French Canadian accent, which is indeed slightly different, as we know. But um, yeah, <laughs> that isn't was he, Scott. Ar- so he's he Mr. Doctor Waffle. Uh, well, you know, Doctor interesting. Mr. You should Dr. ask Dr. that. Waffle. I <laughs> like Hair Professor Doctor Waffle. Um, <laughs> a few years, months ago, like how long have I been doing this thing? I I made an executive decision that what I would refer to him in my essays, I would refer to him as Mr. Waffle because mm-hmm. you know the. If I referred to him as Dr. Waffle, it would get too confusing. It's so very I was like, confusing. Sorry. Indeed. Yeah. He does have a PhD. He's also an English professor, obviously, as anybody who's... I love that he took to your name. Knows us knows. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's very feminist. Or we did that thing where we we uh, we just chose a third name, right? But, you know, right, starting right, right. from scratch. Anyway, back to the play, which I think is so funny and so great. And I have so much to say about soap operas and so many questions to ask you. But before we dive into the specifics of All My Children... Like you wrote this a while ago, right? This is an older one of your essays. Is that correct? I did. I looked back because what I remembered was that I had started writing about this when I was at a writing workshop. I was at Esalen doing a writing workshop with Anne Randolph, and she gave us a prompt of um, write about a habit that you don't want to share. So I started writing about all my children, and then it just I just wrote a little bit, and it sat there. Until I was asked to be part of Playfest Santa Barbara in this show called Breakfast with Smartasses. So this was actually <laughs> the second play I had written for Breakfast with Smartasses. Maybe we'll perform the other play at some point, too, Ooh, which would be fun. super fun. It's, you know, it's obviously mostly me with just a few little parts from other characters. So I got to perform it for an audience as well. Uh, and that was super fun. I forgot to look and see when Playfest was. Well, it was obviously after 2016. I think it was probably 2017. So I think it was shortly after Agnes Nixon Mm. had died. And, you know, I kind of wrote it as a little tribute to her. That's so sweet. It's weird to me to think that we are now so many years beyond 2016 that it could be a number of years ago and still after 2016. It feels weird to me. Since everything changed then, as you say, at the end of, of the piece, 
it feels weird to think how long we've been in this new <laughs> in this new weird mode that we've been in. Wow, that I, I just I love the play format. And I was kind of curious about how that came about, but you actually answered that question. I almost picture it as a kind of like a vagina monologues kind of thing. You know, we've got like a I'm imagining it staged as a spotlight on a single person on a bar stool in the middle of the stage and you know, you're speaking and then these spots pick up the voices of people in the background as they say their lines. I just thought that was a really it's very theatrical and I really like the way that worked. Oh, was thanks. that how they ended up yeah, staging it? It it was sort of like it wasn't a full production of it. It was really a stage mm-hmm. reading, so it was right. it was kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I and, think that works. And I did then make a couple of very small changes for our reading of it here. So when Avon says AMC time, there was actually a whiteboard that uh, we had written AMC time on that that you know the character just held up. But um, right, I didn't think right. that would translate as well on podcast. No, <laughs> no, indeed. <laughs> but I like that. I like that idea of somebody just walking, like almost like those kind of old time vaudeville performances where people bring the, <laughs> the signs through, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Awesome. Oh, and also when I talked about the All My Children Family Tree, that came up because uh, I still have it. And so I took mm-hmm. a picture of it and it came up in the background, like really big behind me when I talked about it. So I think we'll include that in the show notes so that everybody can oh, see it. Oh, that would be great. It's, it's a fantastic work of art. Yeah, I bet. I, I would love to see that. And I, I hopefully people would like to peruse it and refresh their memories about all the relationships on all my children. I want to dive into the specifics here of of soap opera dumb. So mm-hmm. before we go any further, I have to confess that I am a general hospital person. So I hope that we can still oh. be friends. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't remember. I feel like I can't remember now which shows were opposite the, each other, you know, so there's like ABC, CBS, oh. NBC. I, for anybody under 35, do they even know what we're talking about? Like, does anybody even know what CBS, ABC, NBC are now, unless you, like, grew up? So, you know? children, there used to be only TV channels and only, right, like, exactly. a few of them. <laughs> and each of them had their own series of soap operas that would play mm-hmm. during the day. General Hospital was on the same channel as All My Children. Um, so General Hospital it was ABC. Yeah, so and all my children's yeah, okay. ABC. So it was okay, it so was we all my children, and then oh, what's that other one called? Which I which I sometimes would flow into watching afterwards. Guiding ah. light as the world turns. Days of our lives. There were some newer ones. There were like there were like the ones that were my mother's. My mother was a days of our lives person, um, uh, and then she became a general hospital person when my sister and I started watching mm-hmm. General Hospital. So she would watch right. both. But um, I do still remember just the ones – I remember the fact that General Hospital was opposite Guiding Light because oh. my friend – I don't know if you remember all the Luke and Laura stuff, right? So when we were like in high school yes. and college, it was this huge Luke and Laura thing. Um, or maybe even earlier. It might have been junior high actually. I think it was junior high. You know, so with like in junior high, high school, we all started watching General Hospital because that was kind of the big deal one. But my my one friend, Sue, was a holdout Guiding Light person, which is just so weird and bizarre. Like nobody watched Guiding Light. Um, but it was on opposite General Hospital. So she was always missing out. And it was always this big thing in our friend circle that she had to go and watch her own separate soap opera while the rest of us were obsessing over General Hospital. So I don't know if you had... If you had other soap operas, so you said you would sometimes start to watch another one that came on after. We could look this up. So, you know, I'm sure the internet we, somewhere would tell us. So yeah. the thing about General Hospital is it was on later. You know, all my children was on at like one in the afternoon. Mm, so right. we no, no one was home from school. It's the one that the that the grown-ups would watch. But General Hospital, right. because it was late enough, everyone yes. would like rush home from school yes. to watch General yes. Hospital because this was literally before anybody had a VCR. So yes. yeah. So nobody really had VCRs till we were in college. And I, I mean I guess a few people did, the fancy people. Right. <laughs> the early adopters. So, yeah, so I think it was much more common for people in our generation to be into General Hospital. That's exactly right. That, it was precisely that. It was mm-hmm. like the combination of the time. And I vividly remember rushing home from school the whole bit. And then later on, we got into high school and we had friends with cars who were driving or whatever. We would like go to somebody's house. You know, we would all go to one person's house and watch it or whatever. So it was a combination of the time slot. But also, yeah, the Luke and Laura drama. It was... I remember that as being kind of one of the first 
soap opera dramas that spilled over into mainstream pop culture. Like everybody, there were like mm -hmm. people cover stories about it and whatnot. So, but all my children or all my kids, as some of my friends used to call it, did you call it all my kids? <laughs> yeah, some people called it just kids, you know, but I ne that was <laughs> never part of my vernacular. Right. <laughs> you had a much more respectful relationship toward the soap opera. <laughs> but yeah, I, I had friends who were all my kids people as well as being general hospital people because you could do both. I do mm. feel like this whole channel thing, it was so like constitutive of our experience of pop culture, right? Like it, that mm -hmm. this idea that like you had, if there was something on one channel and then something else on another channel, you had to pick and you couldn't like... You know, there were, we weren't recording and there wasn't cable even yet. I guess there was cable, but we didn't have it because we weren't fancy. Well, enough to have but cable. what they would do is that while I was watching All My Children, there would be ads for General Hospital. So, I mean, they mm -hmm. really sort of tried to hook you into the other things going on. And sometimes there would be crossovers, right? Like, wouldn't there oh, be? Oh, I forgot about Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Was there ever there? I'm sure there has to have been an All My Children General Hospital crossover because they would only do it on the same network, right? So like ABC oh, of course, shows of course, would, yeah, yeah, obviously, right. Again, this is not going to make any sense to anybody under the age of forty, probably. When we say when we say <laughs> networks, I just want to say quickly. The a couple weeks ago, I was um, a friend and colleague here in uh, in Oxford, Mississippi, who grew up in. Drexel Hill. So grew up mm -hmm. in the next town over. I grew up in Newtown Square, mm -hmm. uh, you know, ne right near Pine Valley, 15 minutes away from Philadelphia. Very close. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and we were chatting the other day and I, for some reason, something about TV came up or the TV when we were growing up. And I was like, oh, you know, like 3610, that was NBC, ABC, CBS with, with mm -hmm, Philadelphia. So mm -hmm. you probably remember this watching it on Channel 6. That would have been the ABC mm -hmm. channel. Um, and then she's like, and the VHF, or the, the UHF channels, rather, sorry. And we both recited in unison, 172948. It's just like ingrained, right? <laughs> that these were, we had six channels to choose from. And then like the PBS would be on, would be on like on 12. And that would sometimes be a little fuzzy. It wouldn't always come in great. So yeah. So we, I guess in order for anybody younger to understand what the heck we're talking about, they have to know like, this is just the way it was. You, um, it makes us sound like we're ancient. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that, yes, that's it makes us television sound television like we're ancient. <laughs> sure. Exactly. We're not, we're not ancient. We're not we're ancient. Not I, ancient. <laughs> no, not at all. We're, we're, we're oh, still middle-aged. Technology-wise, even... we are. <laughs> It's I mean, true. It's true. Things were very, very different when we were growing up. Very different. Like radically, radically different. And this is, I don't know, mm. I just feel like this is one of the themes of my life lately is just constantly telling younger people about, so boringly, <laughs> about how little of the stuff that we all rely on and depend on and like structures right. our whole lives, how little of it w existed yeah. when we were even into our 20s, but, right? I mean, but our 30s. God. I bet all my children during the summers particularly tried to do things with the younger characters because that's when you could catch, you know, like they did with me. Like they right. like they drew me in with the whole Greg and Jenny storyline and mm -hmm. you know, then I watched all my children as long as it existed. So, yep. so yeah, I think summers were a time to really try to capture the high school and maybe even junior high crowd. I'm sure they must have thought of all of these things, like different times of year, the crossovers. You know, I'm sure they had all kinds of market research about it. I mean, Luke and Laura was definitely a bid for the younger crowd, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I heard of Luke and Laura. I, I just never watched yeah. it in the hospital. I have to say, I'm so impressed with the fact of soap operas because mm -hmm. they would be every single day. And... Right. They didn't do reruns. Like, there was never a rerun of any of them. And they went all year round. I mean, it's a remarkable feat what they pulled off doing that. Yes, that's true. That's another kind of thing about technology that I think is probably important to emphasize, that things were really different. They just recorded them almost cold, right? I think they would have, just from little I know about the way soap operas worked and the way the production worked, they would do some rehearsal but then they basically just went and did the scenes. And that's why sometimes there's, you know, weird acting or, you know, like they, they didn't have a lot of time to do multiple takes and then edit and whatever. They just kind of, it right. was almost like doing theater, right? Like, but with very little rehearsal, like you just had to like learn your lines for each day. It's kind of, I know. And, and the writers, I have to say like right now, as we're recording, we're in the middle of a writers and actors strike. Exactly. And I have to say soap operas really you know, highlight 
how impressive writers and actors are at being able to just work so hard on a really regular basis and do that. I mean, it, it gives me so much appreciation for for people in those fields. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Like, and, and particularly that kind of job, like that kind of writing and, and acting job on those every single day. It's like, I don't want to say grunt work, because that makes it sound like uh, that's it's too pejorative, but almost like kind of like in the trenches, you know, you're just like churning yeah. out the pages and quickly memorizing and, and doing these scenes and just really being like kind of like frontline, frontline entertainers, taking one for the team <laughs> kind of thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Do you know the movie Soap Dish? I do. With Sally I do. Field yeah. and yeah. Goldberg. Yeah. Oh my and God. Billy Crystal. Was Billy Crystal? Oh no, I'm, I'm getting uh, mixed up Kevin with Kevin Klein, I think. Yeah, oh yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Not Soap, which was a TV yeah, show. Soap Dish. And that yes, was which great. Is awesome. but soap dish, yeah. which is all about a soap opera, and it's yes. so good. I yeah, yeah I watched yeah, yeah. it again recently, yeah. and I just I I adore that. So so kids, if you don't mm-hmm. know what we're talking about, <laughs> I don't know how you watch it. I have it on DVD because I am still kind of old school. Do you have <laughs> so a come way to over play to the house and you can watch it? Oh, of course yeah. I do. We'll talk yeah. about Buffy on some other episode, I'm sure. But I have. Right. I, I bought a spinning bike recently, and the way I'm getting myself to spin is that I'm only allowing myself to watch Buffy while I'm spinning. So, like, I have the DVD player and all the Buffy DVDs set up where my spinning bike is so that I can oh. um, I can do that. That's brilliant. That's actually really brilliant. I have to say, I own a lot of stuff. I own a lot of – we own a lot of TV shows on DVD. So I have all of Buffy, obviously, on DVD, all of Seinfeld mm. – all of the, I think most of the office, the American office, no, all, all of the American office, the Sopranos, the wire, mm-hmm. like, again, this is not that long ago. Like I would say up until maybe 10 years ago, 15 at the most people would still like, they would put out these box sets of oh, shows, yeah. like these kind of big glamorous, prestigious box sets of these shows that everybody loved. And the draw of buying the box set would be that there'd be a lot of interviews and extras and behind the scenes specials mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Do they still make them? Oh, sorry, you were going to say something else. But also, you could watch it whenever you wanted to because right. there wasn't this streaming thing where you could just go online and like find your show and binge it. Like this yes. is the way you would binge. In fact. I used to go to the library and take out DVD box sets, and yeah. wa- that's how I watched Ugly Betty, you know? So I didn't buy yeah. it, but I, gosh, that was great. Shout out to public libraries also. like like Absolutely. That's, that's a, they, probably, <laughs> yeah. they probably still have DVDs, in fact. That is a good mm, question. But not. are they still making I mean, they still have like books. What? Who's reading books, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, don't even, I can't even, <laughs> it's so horrifying. Um, so like when a show ends, so like, let's say a show that everybody loves, like, I don't know, like Succession, perfect example, like just mm. ended mm-hmm. its run. Do they make a DVD box set of it anymore? I don't even know. Cause I don't, Oh, I this is a long way of saying we don't have a DVD player anymore. So we can't, we have all these beautiful box sets of DVDs, including all the cool extras. Like, I remember there being particularly a lot of really cool extras with um, The Office. There were actually like extra little skits and extra, you know, like lots and lots of bonus material. But we can't watch it because we don't have any device that will, even you know, computers don't have DVD players anymore. Okay. Yeah. So, so hint on if you want a DVD player, if you go to a thrift store, you can mm. get a whole stack of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. That's a good, that's a good tip. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird though. I find the obsolescence of DVDs and CDs really puzzling because they're really durable. They really, they sound good and they look good, you know, better than streaming or better than, don't even get me started in MP3s. I mean, I can't, any music that's important to me, I own on CD or where I went on vinyl. I still have LPs in a, although that's now like having a record player in LPs is, is now hipster cool. Just want to point out, never got rid of mine. <laughs> so I just like hung on from like, this was the best technology all the way through to like, you are a weirdo back around to you are now cool. So I feel like very vindicated with that. But, um, you got but I just did it because cool cred. Exactly. I just did it because I couldn't stand the sound. I mean, I would listen to a song and I'd be like, oh, there's a whole range here that, that is missing. I, that there's like, I could mm-hmm. hear the, the things that were not in the MP3 version and it drove me bananas. So anyway, sorry, that was a big side note on technology, which we could probably talk about for another three or four podcasts. But I want to get back to the soap opera. So in your play, 
you mention a few of the like more outlandish plot points, right? <laughs> right, mm-hmm. which is of course again for those kids who don't know what we're talking about was, you know, that's the kind of point of a soap opera was that the drama would be ridiculous. Like, you know, the classic is like the forgotten long lost twin or the evil twin or the person coming back Mm -hmm. from the dead or amnesia. These were all kind of ones that all the soap operas did over and over and Mm -hmm. over again, just because they were kind of insane. When I look back at General Hospital, I can definitely say that like the Ice Princess was my favorite insane plot. What were some of your favorite plots or storylines that you particularly remember being important to you or or thinking were great and fun or whatever when you were watching? Oh my gosh, so many. But I think that when they gave an actor an opportunity to play more than one role, I think that that was, Mm. they always did such a great job with that. So when Natalie's sister put her at the bottom of the well, and then like, became her and took over her life, even though she looked nothing like her, you know, but that was kind of great because she was playing, you know, the the evil sister. And she wasn't a twin, you know. Then Natalie was at the bottom of the well for a really long time. Eventually How was long saved. can you live at the bottom of a well? I don't know. Well, in a Weeks. soap opera, you know. Um, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> or, or in real life, a, yeah. A, maybe sort of a long time, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of a great one. Uh, what was the – did you say Ice Princess? Yeah, the Ice Princess was the general hospital. So after the Luke and Laura – uh, storyline resolved itself or at least, you know, they never really resolved themselves, but after it kind of like peaked and kind of came back down to sort of a normal level of story, the next big one was the ice princess. And that one, it was nuts. Looking back on it now, there was like a character, Felicia, who was, had like long blonde hair and blue eyes but of course she was a native american princess of course it's like you know like so like (laughs) disturbing and racist looking back on it now um but you know we want to have a native american character but she has to be this like aryan looking like blonde woman Mm -hmm. um but there was uh like a mafia thing and there was the Ice Princess turned out to be, I'm hoping it's okay that I'm spoiling this 40-year-old plot line on a soap <laughs> opera that I don't even know still exists. But <laughs> the Ice Princess turns out to be like a device that like freezes all of Port Charles, which is the t- – it's like it was really crazy. Oh, my goodness. But the, the main part about it, to go back to what we were talking about before, is it went off the rails as a plot because the big writer's strike in the 80s or 90s, whenever this was, mm. um, that big writer's strike – started right in the middle of the Ice Princess storyline. So I think they had scabs. I think they actually had people coming in to write those episodes that were not union writers. And so they just did a terrible job. (laughs) And the plot was insane. And so I remember, like, when the real writers came back, they had to, like, fix it. I I don't remember the details, but I definitely remember at the time thinking, even for a soap opera, this plot is crazy. Like everyone ends up in a deep freeze. It was like a Batman episode. <laughs> it was not like yeah. a soap opera. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah, I feel like all my children didn't do like supernatural things, you know, that, mm-hmm. but but they had, you know, the, the, the people could be extreme. Oh, and, yeah. and because we were talking about Buffy, um, Sarah Michelle Gellar started on oh. All My Children. She was Erica oh. Kane's daughter, Kendall. Oh, that's And so great. I actually, yeah, so I actually, you know, knew her there. Um, I, I think actually she became a much better actor on Buffy than she was on All My Children. Yeah. She was able to, well, you know, show her stuff better. I don't want to get into a fight on our podcast, but I would say even the first season or two of Buffy, she was a little rough. She got she got way better, I think, as an actor over the course of the series. I, looking back on the oh, first sure, season sure. of Buffy... She was very soap opera-y and kind of, you know, it was very cartoony, whereas I feel like Mm. starting with like, I mean, obviously season two is great, but starting with (sighs) season three, I know, I know. We have to restrain ourselves. I know. We're going to do do an episode on, but one of us or both of us will have to write something about Buffy so we can have I think you should. You should definitely write something about Buffy, but but I'm really excited to talk about it. And we're just going to have to basically have a whole like... Sorry, this is a the entire episode is Total. a spoiler free zone. Mm-hmm. Like, do not listen yep. if you haven't watched all of Buffy because we're not gonna, you mm-hmm. know, we're not gonna try to keep any secrets <laughs> about Buffy. <laughs> anyway, so I feel like the whole soap opera thing. I mean, they started, I think, in the fifties. Some of them, sixties. I mean, like, really, well, like they started as like radio said, dramas. Yeah, before yeah. there was TV, even. Right, exactly, yeah. And then, like, the TV ones just kind of picked, some of them, like, picked up and just kept going. My, like I said, my mother was a Days of Our Lives person. And there were these fine 
gradate, not gradations, what's the word I'm looking for? Like you just kind of knew it's almost like with social media now where it's like the older people are on Facebook and the medium young people are on Instagram and like the real young people are on TikTok. It's like you just knew what your level was. That was what was so weird and funny that my friend Sue, who was in high school with me, was a guiding light person because that was definitely an old person soap opera. Even the title guiding light is such a weird, like, why are you 16 year old girl obsessed with guiding light? Like it just was really funny and strange. But I think, are any of them still, you said all my children is off the air. You explained that in the piece. Mm -hmm. Like, are any of, I know General Hospital is still around and I'll say more about that in a second, but are any of the rest oh. of them still on the air? Do we know? I don't know, but I had no idea yeah. General Hospital was still around. The reason I know this is because my friend W, <laughs> and I will, mm. if she allows me to use her name, I'm sure she'd be fine with it, but um, is a General Hospital super fan still. She is my age. Mm. So she has been watching General Hospital for, I don't know, 40 years, 35 years, oh, something like that. Great. Some crazy long amount of time. I know. And she still watches it. I think she stopped for a while. I have to actually get more information from her. I think she stopped for a while and came back to it, but maybe not. Maybe she, she watched it all the way through. But she is a writer, and she's written about her love of General Hospital and, and soap operas in general. And But she's actually even gone to conventions. I was just talking about this with her the other day. She um, reminded me what I'd forgotten, that she'd gone to a Rick Springfield concert a number of years ago. <laughs> Rick Springfield was a character on, I mean, he's a singer. He sang Jesse's Girl mm -hmm. and all that stuff from the 80s, whatever. But even at the height of his pop star fame, he was an actor on General Hospital. He played one of the doctors. Mm -hmm. So it was a big deal to her to go see Rick Springfield, like not that long ago, like maybe 10 years ago. So anyway, mm -hmm. so that's how I know that General Hospital is still on the air. But the other ones, I don't know if they still are or not. It seems really like such a relic of another era. Like I just, you know, it just doesn't seem like the kind of narrative that people are interested in anymore. Although I don't know why, because we're all interested in binging things that series, right? They go on for a long time. That's still a thing. Or is it just that they're too cheesy? I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking about this play and I was thinking, okay, well, you know, memoir, they're like, what's my narrative arc here? And, and I realized I lay it out there, you know, I'm like, I started and I had like, you know, nothing so interesting going on in my life as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And then sort of, I went through my whole life and I had experienced more things and I sort of didn't need other people's dramas and relationships mm -hmm. and all of that. It's, it's mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, but I got really invested in those characters, you know? I was thinking about the sort of connectedness with other people that is in here, too, because, you know, there were people I watched with and there was, you know, this sort of lineage from from my papa and, you know, all of these things where it wasn't just about the show itself. It was about the bonding with other people about it and caring about the characters. So there's really something interpersonal about soap operas, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Did you ever watch uh, Jane the Virgin? You I watched some of it. Okay. Um, <laughs> did you stop because you didn't like it? Um, I sort of just trailed off. It It is one of those in the story, Irrational Fear of Spoilers. <laughs> That's one of the ones that somebody spoiled something for me. Um, oh. So, yeah. but So I never I never went back and finished it, but I've thought about it. I don't know. Oh, that's uh, a big. That's, there's some big things to spoil in that show, like huge yeah. things. I hope mm -hmm. it wasn't, was it one of the really big ones? Well, I, mean, I, you know, I believe so. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's terrible. That's really terrible. Cause that's like, yeah. Anyway, the reason I asked is because you mentioned that you'd watched Ugly Betty on DVD, mm -hmm. which is of course like the first version of a kind of an Americanization of a Mexican telenovela, right? Where it's like mm -hmm. a kind of American TV show about telenovelas or kind of almost doing a you know, an homage, right? And mm -hmm. then Jane the Virgin comes along and I was like, wow, we're doing this again. That's kind of cool that there's like another whole show. It feels like almost kind of similar in some ways, although it turns out to be a very different kind of show. But in Jane the Virgin, there's a lot made of that, right? That the joke is you're you're watching what's obviously a telenovela. Like the show itself mm -hmm. has all kinds of crazy twists and turns and drama and, you know, and stuff that's obviously soap opera-esque. But within the show the characters all love this one telenovela that they're obsessed with. So like the right. grandmother and the mother and the daughter, Jane, who's the main character, all live together and they watch the show together. And it's just like some of the most lovely scenes. I mean, that show is really wonderful because it's got all this kind of intergenerational bonding stuff and especially about mm -hmm. mothers, right? Mm -hmm. Very mild spoiler. 
she has a son, Jane the Virgin. Like, she gets pregnant in the first episode, right? And she has a mm-hmm. son, which, you know, she was disappointed by because she wanted the fourth generation of women to be mm-hmm. living together. But there's a whole thing about that in the show. But anyway, yeah, sorry, that's a long way of saying, I think the whole idea of watching these things together, it's a way of bonding, but it's also a kind of nostalgic way of imagining that we have a kind of a shared culture that we kind of don't have anymore. You know what I mean? Like mm. even like the the kind of nostalgic setting names like Pine Valley or, you know, Port Charles or the towns are always these kind of, they're always small towns. They're always like everybody knows each other. They're always kind of these hermetically sealed enclosed worlds. And doesn't it feel like that's one of the reasons that they're attractive to us is that we also feel like most of us don't have that kind of easy community. Like you don't grow up in the same, most people, I mean, obviously some people still do, but, but that kind of like small town America thing, which probably never really existed, but we have longing for it. And so like soap operas were a way to kind of connect to that, right? Even more so than like sitcoms or whatever. Yeah, I think that's a good point because they they all took place in a community. There was a real feeling of community in these places. Yeah, it's like the Gilmore Girls phenomenon. Um, oh, yeah. Feel- <laughs> and I have to say, now that I live in such a place, right, I really do. Like It's, it's ridiculous how gee whiz, aw shucks, small town Oxford, Mississippi is. And everybody knows everybody and everybody's very into the idea of it being a community. Like that's part of it. There's like a meta level too, where everyone's like, yes, we are like this. We're committed to the idea of community that, you know, it often feels boring where you're like, there's, <laughs> there's nobody new or there's just kind of like the say you see the same people and, and all no supernatural to... ice princess. There's no supernatural <laughs> phenomena so far. I, I mean, actually, Hold that thought because I am working on an essay about the ghost cop of Roanoke. So, (laughs) so that will be coming up soon on my blog. But um, so maybe there's some supernatural activity, but it's not a feature of you know some central feature Mm -hmm. of the town. Um, But anyway, often when I'm like kind of just like running errands or running into the same people I always know, or going into like the you know the bar that we always go to, and like there's the same people, whatever. I think like wow, this is sometimes feels a little close and a little stultifying and a little boring. And then I think like. But if I was, you know, Lorelai Gilmore, <laughs> this would just, you know what I mean? It always looks so much more fun to live in a small town when it's represented on TV than it is in reality. Like, you know, it, it always feels like people never seem really bored with only seeing the same five people. Or like a TV show or a movie that ends with like the friends coming together and there's always like five of them. That doesn't feel like enough to me in real life, you know? But that's your entire social circle is like this small mm-hmm. little group of friends. So anyway, I feel like... Obviously, this longing is also nostalgic and maybe mistaken. (laughs) Do we actually really want to live in these kinds of places still again? I don't know. I mean, I love Oxford. I love living there. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes it feels a little boring. So I want to ask you, what would you change about this if you... And I know you're going to answer that you were editing it this morning. (laughs) But if you had to think about like a more substantial change or would there be a different way you'd approach it or you just kind of feel like it's perfect as it is? Or or alternatively, if you wanted to lengthen it and make it even longer, like what would you add? It's a good question. I I mean, I wrote it to be short. I don't know that it needs to be much longer, you know, Mm -hmm. as as an homage to to Agnes Nixon. But I do think that some of the things that we're talking about now are really intriguing in Mm -hmm. terms of some of the meaning that soap operas have for people. And Mm -hmm. I could probably elaborate a little bit more on that to kind of bring those forward a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic. I mean, there's been some scholarship on soap operas, of course, because literary scholars write about everything, but media scholars too. Actually, quite a bit of scholarship on soap operas. It's funny to think now that soap operas are old-timey texts. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, it's not... <laughs> it's like you might as well be writing on Jane Austen. I mean, honestly, like, they are they hardly exist anymore. Very few people are familiar with them or read them or watch them or whatever. So yeah, it would be interesting to think about them as aesthetically as works of art like how do they function that would be maybe an interesting thing to think about because when you talk about you know the trajectory of and that's one of the things I loved about this piece so much is that trajectory of like I started watching these because I didn't have any drama in my life and now I feel like I don't need them anymore because I've had the dramas and you know I've had this full life Um, enough with the drama yeah enough with the drama (laughs) time to settle into the um, boring phase of life (laughs) um (laughs) There could be another arc alongside of that, which is maybe like a artistic or, you know, growth or whatever. Like, do you think that part of the reason 
your taste or interest in soap operas kind of like grew and then continued and then waxed and you know and then waned and and dropped off is also a kind of aesthetic sensibility change you know just like mm. I think that's why a lot of people stop watching soap operas like the ridiculousness of them is not satisfying to me anymore like my mm. taste in terms of the kinds of art I want to consume has has shifted or changed you know there is something though about the sort of daily dose of something uh, mm. that helps you mm-hmm. feel connected to it so I mm. often binge podcasts in that way mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. like I'm listening to Glennon Doyle's podcast now and I always mm. go back to the very beginning you know I did that with the Holy Swift podcast so mm-hmm. and I like the ones that have multiple hosts so it mm-hmm. is about the relationship among them and then I always feel connected to them and then I want to write in and like you know so maybe that serves a little bit of that same role in my life. Yeah, I think the daily connection thing is really interesting and important. Like, I remember vividly the awful feeling of the end of the Friday episode, (laughs) right, of General Hospital. Because, Mm -hmm. first of all, they would always give you a big cliffhanger because it's Friday. And then just that, like, oh, I'm not going to get to see what happens for two days. And it was a real feeling of bizarre sadness, you know. There's... um. And again, I'm just going to do the thing which has become my brand on this podcast, which is to throw out tidbits about psychological theories that I know nothing about, have not researched, cannot remember in any detail. (laughs) Go for it. But, you know, that's what I do. (laughs) Um, I remember reading something recently about the phenomenon of face recognition with TV shows where your brain uh, interprets faces that it sees all the time as family or, you know, you have like a kind of a Mm -hmm. biological, a somatic reaction to seeing those faces that like, it's like safe, comforting, you know, this is people you can trust, et cetera. And that, but there isn't a difference with a televised face. Like your brain does the same thing so Mm -hmm. that you're actually, if you're watching, especially if you're binging, so you're doing it every day, if you're watching a show over the course of a certain amount of time, your brain thinks these are people that you know. These, Their brain thinks this is your family or your tribe or whatever, and mm-hmm. that it's connected to them. And so when the show ends, that's part of the reason for that intense sadness that we often feel like when a show comes to an end, we're just like, I feel like I miss these people. You know, you really are missing wow. them on a biological, physiological level. So again, no idea whose research that is or where it comes from. Right. I just read it somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, maybe well, I'll look know, it up and put it in the it, show notes. It sort of makes me think about what people are doing these days is doing that with the news, you know? Like, mm. people are watching the news every day and sort of observing things going on in the world as, you know, and the drama in all of that. And just, it's the constant that people have in their lives. And it's, you know, they and they bond with other people, you know, they talk about it, and, and they're really invested in the characters, you know? So... I wonder if that's a little bit how people are getting that. And maybe if we brought soap operas back, people could then have a healthier relationship with the news. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That's so interesting because it does feel like it's almost like a zero-sum game where people are like, I'm going to stop looking at the news or reading the news or whatever, however you consume it. But I'm going to have to substitute it for something else. I'm just going to start binge watching the show or whatever. And I, I definitely feel like my my media habits operate that way. Like if I get rid of one thing, I've got to put something else in there or, mm-hmm. you know. But the other thing it reminds me of is, so this brings it back to your piece. Right after the 2016 election, when, and I know that you are the author of Beyond Your Bubble and are in, very much invested in having conversations across the political divide, as is the subtitle of your book. I'm just going to go right out there and say that I'm not a, I I hate Trump and I'm a violent liberal, (laughs) right? And so I had a very strong and horrified reaction to uh, the election in 2016. But I remember that's right when my, as so many people became obsessed with news um, Mm -hmm. right after the election. And I would like, I wake up early in the morning, I would have terrible insomnia. I wake up at like four or five, I'd get on my computer and I would just start scrolling through the New York times and the Washington post. And I would read everything. And it was like, his face was everywhere. It was like, Mm -hmm. it was just like, and it got to the point where after a few weeks of this, I was addicted to seeing Donald Trump's face. I really, that's the only way to describe it. It was an addiction. I felt like mm-hmm. I would get on the news and if there wasn't a story about him, what well, there always was, he was like 50% of the news, but I would, sc- I would impatiently scroll past other news stories until I got to one about him so I could see his face, which I hated, oh, wow. but it was like this weird. Yeah, I was absolutely. So after I kind of realized this, I, I was horrified and it took months, but I did kind of try to wean myself off of it eventually but it was really it was about him and I really feel like that was 
a thing that a lot of people experienced. Anyway, so where were we? What is your favorite thing about this piece? It's hard to pick because I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I really love all the other people who are involved in it. You know, it's it's my story, but it's got all these intersections with other folks. And really, the fact that I got I went to that restaurant and the entire cast of all my children was there. I mean, it's just mind blowing that I had that experience. Like that was was, unreal. That was Mm -hmm. really really crazy and amazing. My favorite little micro detail is you forcing the student to sit with you so you could keep the table longer. <laughs> Just like, oh it is true. It was. It's not. It's not a moment to be proud of, and yet. <laughs> yes, every single thing in this is true. <laughs> I, I really that. did that, and I really did follow. Uh, Michael E. Knight, who plays Tad Martin, as far as the bathroom door, but I did not go in. <laughs> That's fabulous. That is really. So I have to ask about the student. Did you fess up? Like, did you later say like, oh, by the way, I trapped you at this table because there was an all my children. Oh, I did or... it right then. Oh, I told okay, good. exactly what was going on. Oh, I was good, like, good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Janie. Right. I said, Janie, can you sit with me? Because, and I explained the whole scenario. Okay, good. Because in the way it's written, it makes it sound like you, <laughs> which is funnier, but of course, much more ethically problematic. It made it sound like you were basically like made up an excuse. Like, you know, it, it almost felt like a sitcom scenario to me where you were like, oh, student, come over here. I need to talk to you about your thesis. And then you were like pretending to have a conversation about that because you wanted to sit at the table. Okay. That makes me feel better on behalf of the student. <laughs> I try not to be ethically problematic. (laughs) We all do. We all do. And I, yeah. (laughs) Anyway. All right. Well, I think we're just about out of time, but thank you again so much for sharing this. I loved learning about your soapbox. I feel like there's so many layers of things about Tanya that I just didn't know. And here's another one of them. I did not know that you were. My my friends have been telling me this uh, as they've been listening to the podcast. They're like, I'm learning all kinds of new things about you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) My mom always used to say that about coming to see me perform uh, my stories. So, so. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, this is great. I love getting to share with you. And then I also love getting to hear more from you. So this is this is a great it's a great way for us to get to know each other. Exactly. Thanks, Tanya. We'll see you next time on Dr. Waffle. Listeners, if you liked what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe and share so more folks can find us. You can follow us on social media at Dr. Waffle Pod. That's D.R. Waffle Pod, all one word or email us at drwafflepod at gmail.com. Check out the show notes for websites and other info. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.